morning church. Uh, today's reading comes from James, chapter 2, verses uh, 1 to 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor person in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the one who is poor, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich who are exploiting you. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbors as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. It's hard to remember that this time last week, uh, 77 members of the congregation, let's call them the Magnificent 77, all went off to this remarkable weekend away together. And we heard a lot of great teaching, and we had worship and fellowship, but we all knew we'd have to come back to earth, back to the church, with some challenges. And there are a few more difficult challenges have to face in this passage from James, who is a strict teacher. But we don't want to be afraid of the difficult parts of uh, the Christian challenges. But let's um, admit right from the start <clears throat> that the book of James as a whole can be characterized by three words beginning with C, controversial, challenging, and calling calling us to new patterns of Christian living. But just to start on a light-hearted note, when I started to study this bit of scripture, I was reminded of a famous line from Alice in Wonderland, when the White Queen suddenly says to Alice, Alice, I'd like you to do six impossible things before breakfast. And Alice actually did go out and do them. And in the same spirit, so sometimes should we. But it is important not to get daunted or discouraged by some of James's difficult exhortations, which you'll hear in a moment. 
Now, at the beginning of this series on the book of James, uh, Pat reminded us that the book was regarded as so controversial by the greatest religious genius of the Reformation, Martin Luther, that he wanted to exclude the whole book from the Bible. It mangles all scripture, he said. It opposes Paul. Now, eventually, Luther softened that view. But there are theologians who find parts of this book hard to swallow, and so will some of you. There are more difficult imperative commands in this book than any other book in the New Testament. And indeed, there are a couple of difficult verses in our reading today which some Bibles and almost all lectionaries cut out because they are so difficult. I'll be brave enough to tackle them today. I don't believe in avoiding the difficult parts of Scripture. But just be warned, a diet of six impossible things before breakfast is a tough diet. But actually, they can make a transformational diet. And transformation is what our mission is all about. Now today, the reading begins with a tirade by James against favoritism, posh dress codes in church, snobbery, prejudice, front seats for the rich, back seats for the poor, class distinction, and all kinds of discrimination. Well, looking around St. Peter's on this on other any other Sunday morning, I can understand what anyone might say, what on earth is all this about? Nothing like this ever happens here. And on one level, that would be a perfectly fair comment because we as a church as a whole have massively changed for the better in some of the areas James is talking about. And these changes have transformed large parts of the church in my own lifetime. Let me give you a small personal illustration of this. Many years ago, I had a school friend who unexpectedly gave up his promising career as a barrister to become a junior uh, curate at a rather old-fashioned church in Kensington. And he invited me to come to one of his services. I wasn't much of a churchgoer myself in those days, but out of politeness to my friend, I duly rocked up and found that the service was uh, matins, according to the 1662 literature of the Book of Common Prayer, and after matins, we were all invited to have a glass of sherry with the vicar. And our, all the people drinking the sherry, all the men, were smartly dressed in suits and collars and ties. And the ladies were also well-dressed. Twin sets and pearls, well-cut suits and dresses from Harrods, Harvey Nichols, and so on. I could go on, but you'll get the picture. Now, it may amuse you to know that the Kensington Church I've been describing was actually Holy Trinity Brompton. And the curate pouring out the sherry after matins in about 1965 was my school friend Sandy Miller. And yet it was Sandy, who is well known to many of you, who transformed HTB into a powerhouse of evangelical Christianity. And Sandy and his successor, Nicky Gumbel, made HTB the Church of the Alpha Course, which transformed the lives of millions of Alpha girls all over the world. And probably that for quite a few of us here in St. Peter's today, including Pat, including myself, who wouldn't have been here if it wasn't for the transforming power and of Alpha and HTB. But transforming a church is hard work. Pat has been hard at it here for six and a half years. I remember coming to his induction service in 2017 and worrying that the elderly congregation, small congregation that evening, we're not all that far removed from the sherry at Matins and Twinset and Pearls era. 
So we might think we've done rather well at St. Peter's in eliminating some of these sins of favoritism and dress codes which James condemns. But have we? Let's just go a little bit deeper before we write off James's criticisms. Remember the cynical comment of Oscar Wilde who said, it's only shallow people who do not judge by appearances. And for example, if a smelly old tramp turned up at St. Peter's, would we happily usher him up into the one of the front seats or would we discreetly edge him to a seat at the back or the side of the church? I would absolutely bet the ranch that we'd get the James seat of approval for how he handled such a fragrant gentleman of the road if he arrived here. But James is often provocative and deliberately so. And he may be using an extreme example in contrasting the stylish rich man in his gold jewelry, probably his designer's jeans with a shabby, filthy old tramp. But perhaps where James really does hit the spot in our 21st century world is in his rhetorical question in verse 4. Have you not discriminated against yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now you'll be relieved to hear that I'm not going to launch a Spanish inquisition into which of us will ever have any evil thoughts. That's for our own consciences with God. But I do think the hardest punch in these four verses of James opening chapter 2 comes not in the verse of favoritism, where he begins, but in verse 4, where he ends by attacking judgmentalism. Now, James, who was the brother of Jesus, was a passionate communicator of some of Jesus' most difficult teachings. And I would guess that James's words, have you become judges with evil thoughts, is derived directly from one of the most difficult teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, do not judge or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. It's a rather frightening teaching which should cause concern to us all because judgmentalism is a sin which runs all the way from the first century to the 21st century. We may now be able to say genuinely that we've risen above and beyond judging people because of the color of their skin. But don't many of us make judgments about people based on their accents, their status, their jobs, their behavior, their manners or their lack of them, their reputations, their successes and so on. And these judgmental attitudes are magnified in both the national media and particularly in the social media where the trolls, the commentators, the editors seem to run the greatest judging machine in our society. However, there is at least one community of people in this world who strive hard not to be judgmental, who strive to give one another equal treatment, and who strive to love one another unconditionally. And that community is or should be the church, and that's what James is getting at here. So lesson number one from this reading is, and certainly in this church, let's never be judgmental, and let's always be loving and welcoming towards one another. Now moving on in our reading, in verses 5 to 7, James has a rather disconcerting riff about the poor and the rich. Quite rightly, he loves the poor who have faith just as Jesus did. Memorably saying in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And James amplifies this further by contrasting the poor with the rich and then giving the rich a 
pretty brutal hammering. He accuses Richard of being exploiters, insulters, slanderers, and cruel persecutors of the poor. I think here he's having a crack at the wealthy Jews of his time who did persecute the early Christian followers with expensive litigation or more nasty methods. But we're living in today's world, and we know that not all poor people are rich in faith, and not all rich people are poor in faith, or wicked, or godless, or cruel. James is a polemicist, and like many a good polemicist, he sometimes overstates his case. But he does make a good point by implying that many of the poor know that they need God, while too many of the rich think that they may have other more comfortable options. You know, there's an amusing snippet of dialogue between two great American uh, writers of their time, Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway, and they're together in some bar, so the story goes, and Scott Fitzgerald, the author of The Great Gatsby, began, you know, Ernest, the rich are different from you and me. Yes, they have more money, <laughs> replied Hemingway. And having more money well, can be good or bad according to the vision that money serves in the eyes of God. And in a church community, we should neither look down on the poor or up to the rich. We're all equal in the sight of God, and never more so as we will be in a few moments' time when we stand together in the altar to share in Holy Communion. It is true that some rich people, because they have money, think they are a bit unequal, so much so that they are unwise enough to think they don't really need to pray much or listen to God. James has some dire warnings for those who make that mistake in chapter 5. But we're on today's reading, so let's just note that James quickly moves on to what he calls the royal law. What is the royal law? James says it's the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. He may not have wanted to confine it exclusively to this one single verse of scripture, because the phrase, the royal law, has for millennia been regarded as a sweeping definition of the Bible teaching in all its entirety. And we were reminded of that during the coronation service last year when the moderator of the Church of Scotland presented our king with the Bible and said, Your Majesty, I give to you the royal law. So it's the foundation of all Bible teaching. Well, so far so good with the somewhat testing teaching of James in our reading this morning. But it does get more difficult. I warned you there are a couple of verses here, 11 and 12, which most lectionaries leave out. I won't read them today, but there's no getting away from the fact that they appear at first reading to suggest that all breakers of the law are equally sinful and that murderer and adultery are equal. And even more confusing, it seems to imply that murder might be acceptable, but not if it leads to adultery. Well, at first reading, um, this bit reminds me of uh, an American politician called Mayor LaGuardia, who has an airport still named after New York. And he had a wonderful phrase which he used to use when <clears throat> he, anyone's opinion, uh, he disagrees. And he used to say, however thin you slice it, it's still bologna. And actually, if you look at verses 11 and 12, literally or legally or, or logically, it really does seem at first reading appropriate to dismiss them as baloney or close to it. For how can you be guilty of breaking the most serious of laws if you're just breaking a minor law? 
Are traffic violations as bad as terrorism? Is shoplifting on a par with sex crimes? Come on, James, pull the other one. But there is an interpretation here of these verses which we should consider. And we need to understand that James is not writing here about Jewish law or Roman law or indeed any earthly system of law. He's writing about God's law, which he calls the royal law. And it's a law with far higher demands and standards from which there can be no exceptions, even for minor transgressions. Look at it this way. God's law can be compared to a sheet of glass. If it's broken, it's broken. It's no use saying, oh, it's just a little bit broken. And in these terms, James is right to say that if we're going to be full-hearted, committed members of a Christian community like St. Peter's, then just a little bit of sinning on the side is really not acceptable because it's like breaking God's sheet of glass. That's one interpretation to put on these difficult verses. Now, just in case you may be beginning to think that the calling of the book of James, as expressed in our reading today, is a bit too challenging, a bit too strict, just be patient for a couple of minutes and wait for the glorious crescendo to this passage, whether it's music with Joe or anything. I love a great dramatic ending, a dramatic finale and crescendo. And you get one here in this reading, and it explodes in the last four game-changing words of our reading. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I'll try and think of an image to illustrate the power of this ending by amusing you by telling me of an occupation I used to have. I used to be a uh, manager of a Formula One Grand Prix racing team. And so it's a world I knew a little bit about. I was uh, manager for a while of the Williams racing team, owned and run by Frank Williams. And I'll not bore you how all this happened, rather by accident. But what I need to say is that I got to know these great men of the track uh, very well indeed. Their names, because they were back in the 70s, like Nigel Manson and Damon Hill, Alan Jones, Nelson Piquet. These are all my friends, drinking companions. And in various conversations, they all said more or less the same thing. But far and away, the most thrilling moment in a Formula One race is when, after all the 68 or so laps are over, you get to the final straight, the final straight of 60 seconds or so, really high-speed racing, dead in a straight line, towards the checkered flag at speeds very close to 200 miles an hour. And the cars are no more than one, two or three tenths of a second apart from one another. And the climax of the race grips everyone. The crowds are yelling with hysterical excitement. The drivers are fighting with their steering wheels. They're putting every ounce of their muscles on the accelerator pedals and the noise, boom, 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 of the Ferrari or Cosworth engines at full throttle almost bursts the human eardrums. If you've ever been to a Grand Prix, you'll know what I'm talking about. And then the checkered flag falls, the race is run, and the winner does a victory lap of triumph. What a scene, what a climax, what an ending. Now, it's a surprisingly small step to bring you back from the Grand Prix Formula One finishing line to the finishing line of this passage from the book of James. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is far and away the most important line of our reading. What does it mean? 
What's its relevance to our lives today? Loving mercy is the ultimate quality of God. Granting it is his supreme prerogative. Mercy is a word which has many synonyms, such as compassion, kindness, pity, forgiveness, clemency, leniency, love, and above all, grace. But let's stick, as our reading does, to mercy, which is first highlighted in the Old Testament when God says in Exodus 33:19, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And this theme of divine mercy runs like a golden thread throughout the whole of the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Psalms, where it's mentioned over 50 times, sometimes when God is being asked for forgiveness and mercy, as he was by King David asked some extremely bad behavior in Psalm 51, the great penitential psalm, which begins, have mercy on me, O God, according to our great compassion, blot out my sins and my transgressions. Well, sometimes it's a matter of a continuous rejoicing, as in Psalm 103, which says, The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting for those who fear him. And then, of course, bringing us right up to date, mercy is central to ancient and modern Christian liturgy, particularly when we approach, as we will do this morning in slightly different words, with words originally known to the church as the Kyrie Eleison, Lord have mercy. Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. And then throughout the whole of the New Testament, mercy is the cornerstone, the power and the glory of Jesus' ministry. Time and again during his ministry, people cried out to Jesus, Lord have mercy. Sometimes they were the sick and the dying. Sometimes they were the mentally ill, afflicted by evil spirits. Sometimes were those with leprosy. Sometimes they were prostitutes greedy businessmen, tax collectors, and all sorts and conditions of sinners. But time and again, they cried out to Jesus, the Lord have mercy, and Jesus always gave it to him. And Jesus highlighted the importance of mercy in his Sermon on the Mount, particularly the fifth beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. And, of course, you will all know some of the wonderful parables about mercy, like the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son. But there are also in the Gospels some terrible warnings in the Gospel about lack of mercy. And these are amplified by James in what he calls the judgment without mercy that will be shown to those who have not been merciful to others in their lives. Well, one way or another, there can be no doubt that mercy is the distinctive feature of God's character and of Jesus' ministry and example and indeed of our own salvation. Old-fashioned Judaism was full of strict rules given priority, and some of this is reflected in the book of James. And modern Islam is full of rules too. But only in the Christian Gospels are mercy and forgiveness the cornerstones of God's love for us. And so how right it is that in the last four words of our reading today, James the strict becomes James the gentle, as he concludes by telling us that God's gift of mercy will triumph over judgment. Now, of course, 
as members of a committed church-going Christian community striving to conform uh, our own and other people's lives, we should strive with all our might to avoid the sins James, James warned us against in the early verses, favoritism, judgmentalism, being too impressed by money, breaking even small parts of the royal law. But we are bound to stumble and fall sometimes on life's journey. Like those Formula One Grand Prix, Grand Prix drivers, <clears throat> as we speed around the circuits of life, there will be moments when we cut corners, make mistakes, have shunts, bang into one another and hurt one another, or even crash and burn ourselves. And those episodes may well merit harsh judgment. But be comforted, be encouraged by these last four words at the finishing line of our reading. For they tell us that at the last we'll meet our God, whose mercy triumphs over judgment. So let us thank God for his great mercy and pray that he will give it to us when our time is come. Amen.